The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. After law school, Jay Clayton served as a clerk for the Honorable Marvin Katz of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. He spent most of his career at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, advising market participants on capital raising and regulatory enforcement. This year, he was nominated to chair the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and sworn in on May the 4th. He joins me now for a closer look. Jay, do you have a list of what you want to accomplish in the short term, and how would you describe long-term goals for the SEC? Let me take those in reverse order. In terms of long-term goals for the commission, our goal is to ensure that we pursue our tripartite mission in a way that reflects the market realities of today. So capital formation, efficient markets, investor protection. Uh, the markets have changed dramatically in the last decade following the, uh, following the financial crisis as a result of technological factors and um, political factors, including, um, as we talked before uh, going on the air here, MIFID in Europe. And so there's a lot of change going on. Long-term objective or an objective that we have in mind as we take each short-term step is making sure that our rules and how we approach them is aligned with the market realities of today. In terms of short-term items, there are, there are a few items that are, that are worth highlighting. Maybe if I go, um, you, you know the commission so well, maybe if I try to go division by division and talk about the key rules or key initiatives in each of the divisions, would that be a good way to look at it? Yes, if we could briefly touch on each division, I think the audience is probably most interested in the enforcement division. Mm -hmm. uh, in corporation finance, we, we are interested in facilitating capital formation and, and doing so in a way that in no way undermines investor protection. And, and, and that what that means is um, trying to find ways to make it easier for companies to come to market in our public markets, which are, which are and remain the best markets in the world, the safest markets for, for individual investors. I am discouraged, as I've said um, a number of times, at the reduction in the number of public companies, which reduces the, uh, the breadth and depth of the portfolio available to retail investors. Um, so that's, that is a focus there. I also want to look at the private end of the spectrum and see if there are ways to enhance participation for a broader set of Americans in the private end of uh, private end of uh, the capital formation spectrum, turning to uh, trading in markets, oversight of uh, of the markets and how they function, we are going to look at how they are functioning today with electronic trading, market structure, 
the maker-taker model. The MSAC, our Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee, has recommended that we do a pilot program to test uh, how effective uh, our maker-taker and NMS model is. We're going to pursue that. It's not ready yet. We just named a new division of uh, Trading and Markets Head, a very capable guy, Brett Redfern. I'm going to give him a chance to look at what we're going to do, um, but we're going to push forward with the, uh, the MSAC recommendation. In investment management, we're collecting much more data than we have in the past. I want to do that in a responsible way. That's a front burner item. Uh, and also, we have some rules around liquidity and um, basically transparency to the marketplace and how the funds are working that we um, we want to move forward with. The, the Division of uh, Economics, uh, DIRA, they're going to support these rulemakings. Then lastly, turning to um, turning to enforcement. There's, there's no significant change in our enforcement agenda. People have asked, is there a significant change? No. Um, we, we are moving forward much the same way. The co-directors, Steve Pekin is a former prosecutor, um, has come back to the government. Stephanie Avakian has been at the commission for a while. Um, I'm in regular contact with them about what I would say are operational matters, but they're moving forward um, largely independently on uh, the commission's uh, enforcement agenda. We are adding two elements to it. One is a cyber unit. Uh, I, I am I am concerned about a number of elements in the cyber area, including initial coin offerings and uh, hacking. And we have a um, we have a retail unit, and there's a little bit of a misunderstanding on our retail unit. It is focused on pump and dump and some of some of those what I would say are local frauds we want to get to. but it's also focused on areas where there's a broad retail impact hidden fees have a, a huge impact across the market and they and they really affect the mom and pop investor and that unit is going to focus on that kind of opacity and make making sure that people know what they're paying for what they're buying that makes a great deal of sense as to the Sarbanes-Oxley or Dodd-Frank acts, are you planning to repeal any portion of those rules or regulations? Let's start with Sarbanes-Oxley. Let me go with the positive. First thing I want to say is uh, we just adopted um, a change to the audit reporting model, mm-hmm. requiring audits, auditors in their, um, in their opinion to discuss the critical matters that they discussed with the audit committee, which brings me to the audit committee, which I think was, during your tenure, a terrific thing, um, enhanced by Sarbanes-Oxley. I I know of no regulation developed in the last 20 years that has gotten more bang for the buck in terms of investor protection than having an independent audit committee as a focal point for discussing how you report financial matters to the general public. It's been a terrific development. And if people say, are you anti-Sarbanes-Oxley, I say, absolutely not. Look how valuable that approach has been. I mean, and, and it started with you. It didn't happen on your watch, but since you disclosed a data breach in September of the SEC's Edgar system, the agency's cybersecurity has come under increased scrutiny. You've said that the Enforcement Division is looking into the matter but you've provided few details of what actually happened as the probes remain ongoing. At this point, do you know who got into the system and whether or not they made any illicit trades? 
So as, as we disclosed, um, there was a, in 2016, there was a breach of uh, our EDGAR system. Uh, we believe that the information obtained as a result of that breach um, facilitated illicit trading. It was information that was not yet available to the public um, that somebody could have used to their advantage. Beyond that, um, as, you, as you would understand, the investigation of that matter, which is um, an illicit matter, potentially criminal matter, um, certainly a violation of SEC rules is ongoing, and I, and I shouldn't be commenting on it um, to any greater extent. Do you think that Mary Jo White was aware of it? Uh, as, I, as I testified in the Senate uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, nothing has changed my view, uh, I, I have no indication that Mary Jo White was aware of this. Now, the SEC has said it believes the breach was related to Edgar, and the agency has said it believes two persons' personal information were exposed. Do you believe that that's the extent of the breach, or do you think there may have been uh, other people's data as well. Our investigation into the breach and the extent to which information may have been accessed is ongoing. I'm not going to comment further on it until that investigation is complete. I, I think we, we have an understanding of the event. We've disclosed that. And uh, when the investigation is complete, we'll, uh, we'll give more details. Now, for some years, the notion of a consolidated audit trail has been promised and debated, and through three or four commissions, this issue has been maintained. And I've wondered often whether this would lead us to a point that uh, the cyber fraudsters would just relish this as a vehicle to get into the system and mm -hmm. create havoc. What's your view of uh, what we should be doing and uh, how much you are pressing forward on the consolidated audit trail. So I am pressing forward on the consolidated audit trail for the reasons that it was originally proposed. It was um, proposed in response to the flash crash because a great deal of time was spent gathering data before we could analyze the data to try and assess what happened. Similar thing happened in the Treasury market. Um, it also is valuable from a market integrity point of view, makes it a lot easier to catch insider trading and market manipulation. So those are the motivating factors. Now, how can we achieve those with the least risk of the type of event yes. that you are talking about? We need to focus more on that question before pressing the button to go live. That, and that doesn't just mean protecting the data, you know, trying to put up as much cyber defense as possible, means asking ourselves, can we do things to make it a less target-rich environment, to make it less attractive to hackers? Should we take the data on a deferred basis? Should we eliminate personally identifiable information or somehow um, mask it or use encryption technology? We are, we are looking at those things for exactly the reasons you identify. Now, turning to uh, MIFID II, some large pension funds have said that they want to have more of an option to buy unbundled research in the mm -hmm. United States, as they'll soon be able to do in Europe. Mm -hmm. They've argued that the kind of no-action relief the Commission gave, which was limited to U.S. firms when they work with clients covered by MIFID, 
would be unfair and put them at a disadvantage. How do you feel about that? MIFID is a significant change, or I should say it has the potential for a significant change in how the European markets are regulated. Research is one of them. Execution is another. Um, we, we can discuss that in more detail. But our markets are interconnected. So what's happening in Europe is going to affect what's happening here. What's happening. So if the rules don't jive, we, we've got to deal with it. So Europe has decided that they're going to force unbundling, require it. Um, going back in time in the U.S., we, we had a problem with compensating brokers for any activity other than providing brokerage services in the incidental. So we, we had a different rule set. The question you ask is, should we turn that rule set completely around in response to Europe? My view on this was, let's take an incremental approach. Let's try and accommodate what's happening there in a way that doesn't do um, a great deal of uh, violence to the way we operate and see how it goes. I'm very open-minded to what's in the best interests of long-term retail investors. That's where I want to get to. Let's see what's going to happen. Well, I think that credo really uh, should be the mantra for every SEC chairman. Uh, the interests of investors have got to trump everything else. Now, the Bank of, in Bank of America made itself an investment advisor ahead of the overhaul of European market rules, so they can continue to provide financial research to asset managers in Europe. Do you think this is a sensible solution? I'm not going to um, second guess some people at, at Bank of America as to what they decided to do. I think it, it makes a reasonable sense, but it, it points something out, um, Chairman Levitt, which is we have a lot of different size participants in this marketplace. It may make sense for a global bank like Bank of America to take that kind of approach and say, this is how we're going to approach our client base worldwide. That same decision may not make sense for the broker-dealer in the Midwest, who has very few European clients. Jay, you've yet to release a comprehensive rules agenda. What would you say are your top five priority rulemakings? We are going to release a comprehensive agenda uh, in the very near future, as required by the Regulatory Flexibility Act. That agenda, as required by the Act, is supposed to reflect what we expect to be able to complete in the coming year, at least the first part of the uh, agenda. That's exactly what I intend to do. I intend to list a set of rules that we expect to, to finish. That agenda in the past, and there, there are good reasons for this, has been expansive. I would say in some ways um, optimistic, maybe beyond optimistic. I, I think it's good governance to put forth a set of expectations that we can reasonably meet. So turning to your question, some of the, I would say, more um, newsworthy items on there is we are going to pursue a investment advisor, broker-dealer standard of conduct in response to where we've gotten with the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. We, we want to bring clarity um, as well as protection for retail investors and choice for retail investors to the marketplace. Why didn't that go through the SEC to begin with? I, I've heard a lot of reasons why it didn't go through. The, let's just... Let's look forward. It belongs with the SEC. Do you think you can deliver it in a timely fashion? We're sure going to try. That would be good government. Mm -hmm. 
because it should have been the SEC, and the Department of Labor did it only because they didn't feel the SEC would do it, that the commission was politicized and simply would not go in that direction. So I sure hope you're right. Well, we are. Let's put it this way. We've thrown our hat in the ring, and we're going to try and get it done. In a recent speech, you said as an agency, we've learned a great deal while implementing the JOBS Act on ramp for emerging growth companies. How successful have you been, do you think? I think the JOBS Act, both specifically and as a as a paradigm for approaching regulation in our capital markets has been a very good thing. When I used to do initial public offerings, the first thing that would be asked when you walked into the room is, is this an emerging growth company? In other words, does it qualify for the JOBS Act? Because everyone in the room knew that the hurdles to get to a public offering would be substantially less in terms of time and effort And I firmly believe that at the end of the day, when that company went public, there was no difference in the disclosure available to the public marketplace. So it was a good thing. Backing up, our markets have changed a lot. We have the top 1,000 companies are so different. Top 1,000 companies in terms of size are so different from a company that's, it sounds like a big number, a billion-dollar company or a $500 million company looking to raise capital. If you and I sat down and said, let's, let's design some rules that reflect those different types of companies, we would not apply the same rule set to the $500 million and billion dollar company that we apply to the Microsofts and the Googles, et cetera. We would try to do something that got investors really what they needed, but was a little bit more in the middle. The Jobs Act reflects a step in that direction we should keep looking at that because the markets have changed so much with these mega, you know, global companies. We need to see what, whether our model really works for the, the company that's growing. Maybe someday becomes a mega company. I'm not sure that we can fairly measure our markets by the number of uh, IPOs. Uh, the variables in terms of uh, what brings about a healthy IPO market are largely beyond regulators' control. And I think that measurement is probably as imperfect as a measurement in terms of the number of enforcement cases that you bring. I think that's a ridiculous statistic that uh, I hope you won't get into playing that game because that's no indication of the success of the commission and their critical mandates. I hope you agree with that personal judgment. I completely agree with your judgment on both scores, the number of enforcement cases and the number of IPOs. But if I could just say what I am concerned about, and I talk about the number of public companies, I'm just concerned about the percentage of our capital markets that retail investors can efficiently participate in. And when you have a relatively fewer number of public companies, it's much harder for retail investors to participate in our capital markets. What's your position on the Volcker rule? It's a joint rulemaking. My position is I want to work with my colleagues at the Fed, um, at the Treasury, at the OCC, uh, to look at it. It's, the concept of the rule makes a lot of sense. 
And the question is, are we implementing it in a way that achieves that concept? Yes or no? Are we implementing it in a way that is too costly for what we're trying to achieve? And we should be, we should be looking at it. Jay, you've said that uh, the SEC should broaden its review of market structure to the efficiency and transparency of our fixed income markets. What are you concerned about? We, we have done, starting, starting with your tenure, I think we've done a terrific job of bringing efficiency to the equity markets. There's, there's a transparency, narrowness of execution, all things that help retail investors have been proved dramatically in the last 15 years. There are some things that we need to look at. We're going to look at them, see if we can, if we can improve it. The fixed income market is in the incipient stages, and it's coming fast, of that type of, I'll call it electronification, for lack of a better word. I want to, but the fixed income market is different from the equity market. You have a, a lot more idiosyncratic instruments. You may have the same company that has a bunch of different fixed income securities that have a bunch of different characteristics. And what I'm concerned about is trying to put that equity model into the fixed income market in a way that doesn't work. You want to do it in a way that does work for retail investors. That, they're, that they get the same kind of benefit they got in the equity market, in the fixed income market, but they were doing it recognizing that the markets are different. It always appeared to me that any regulator had to play catch up, that it was rare that the commission could find a, a wrongdoer before the deed was accomplished. And Mary Jo White had uh, a broken windows concept of regulation. Uh, how would you categorize your view on appropriate rather than intrusive and overbearing uh, regulation? I agree with your um, I agree with your premise. It's all it's often difficult to find the wrongdoer until you see the harm. We are trying in that area, though. I've challenged my colleagues at the commission. I I believe that wrongdoing often lies in the dark or in opacity. And I've challenged my colleagues at the commission to come up with rules that not overly burdensome, but that get rid of some of that opacity that enables fraud and wrongdoing. Um, in terms of my approach to, uh, to uh, enforcement, there's no dramatic change, but I, I, I do believe that the approach has to be proportional to the environment. And that's something that I know that the um, that the my co-directors or the co-directors of the Division of Enforcement share. I think I think that's absolutely the the right direction. Uh, I think that the surprises that lie ahead in terms of the enforcement area is one of the things uh, you will have to learn to live with. Just when you think that things are going well. Something comes out of the blue. For me, it was Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Of course, I had known Bernie Madoff from his years as head of NASDAQ. And I was totally blindsided by the revelation of his misdeeds. And I think the commission for the next 20 years will be living with the ghost of Bernie Madoff. Where were you during the Madoff uh, exposure? 
<laughs> Thankfully, not invested with Bernie Madoff. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's that that's going back to what we talked about. Um, you know, trying to eliminate the opacity. He he had a structure that enabled him to, to you know to hide for a long time, where he had custody, execution, etc., all under one roof. Um, but uh, you know, I am sure that I will get hit over the head with something that I don't expect. What surprised me when I came to the commission was that the number of issues that appeared in the newspaper before we got to it, almost all the issues resulted from a story in the newspaper. Is that still the situation? More so than I would have expected. Yes. You've said that the commission should broaden its view of market structure. And again, that leads us to fixed income markets. We don't have the transparency of fixed income that we have in the rest of our markets. Do you think during your tenure we'll see any greater transparency? Chairman Levitt, I, I am I'm very hopeful that we will. And I think that it's not just because we will make rules. It's because of technological developments and demands from the buy side for more transparency. And one of the motivating factors for putting together a fixed income market advisory committee is to try and get that right um, and try and eliminate any kind of fighting between different factions, uh, looking forward, knowing where that market is going and getting, getting the transparency correct. Some see your past as a Wall Street lawyer as a conflict, but your experience from helping Alibaba go public and the roles you had in the 2008 crisis uh, related to Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers seems pretty good background for understanding what uh, our markets can bring the country. What do you think you bring to the commission from your prior career that may be missing? Those two um, experiences you noted and some others, I, I think I bring a very positive attitude about what our markets can do. I've seen capital formation really make a difference in terms of jobs, in terms of growing companies. I've lived abroad and worked abroad, and I have a, you know, I have a patriotic view of our capital markets and our economic system. I think it's the best. I've also seen some pretty bad stuff, bad stuff in terms of, you know, 2008, what happened in the marketplace, um, what it meant to people on Main Street to have such a, you know, unforeseen um, reduction in value and, and their wealth and income, and those those effects are lasting. And I've also seen bad behavior um, by individuals. That overall portfolio, I think, serves me well, along with my fellow commissioners, um, to take the commission forward. He was a partner at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell for over 20 years and an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Today, he's the newest chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Chairman Jay Clayton, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter, at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.